Marcus Harris treats his music career like a business. Music for Marcus started as battle rapping in the lunchroom of his high school. And after gaining recognition in the battle rap scene under the name Bullet, Marcus began to book shows around his hometown of Chicago. When his performances began to generate some money, he decided to take his music to the next level. He rebranded his unique sound and style under the name Mr. Robotic and began building the foundation for a business. Today, Mr. Robotic has hundreds of sync placements and popular shows like The Jersey Shore, Black Lightning, I Feel Bad, and more. We sit down with Mr. Robotic today to hear about his growth from battle rapper to producer and entrepreneur on this episode of Big Break. Yeah, let's just like start from the beginning, okay, and and talk about where you uh, where you grew up, okay, how your upbringing and and what happened there. Okay, I'm um, originally uh, from Chicago, born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I grew up on 81st and Western. Um, then ended up moving to Justice, Illinois, and then moved to Oakland, Illinois. Probably I feel like 15, 16, and then went to college. Uh, downtown at Columbia College, Chicago. So, um, and then I eventually moved to LA and. Uh, 2011. So growing up, did you have an interest in music at all? Um, so I started getting into music, uh, I feel like sophomore, well, freshman year of high school, there was this guy named Ad2, who's pretty popular. Uh, he's been getting like a lot of interviews, even lately, because he runs, I forgot the name of it, but it basically just helps like the community kids. And they, it's called The Haven. I'm pretty sure it's called The Haven. And it's in Chicago. And, you know, he gets the kids, they do songs, a recording studio, you know, they get to perform and do all of this stuff. But um, he's like, I think he was signing Knife Wonder at the time as well. But he basically got me into rap. So we used to go... Um, to the lunch tables and people would do the little uh beat thing on the table and they would freestyle for real then i'll come in with the little jokes or whatever and then i would, we would just do that at the lunch table like every day and then eventually my cousin he put together a studio and then i think add two needed the studio or we just going to go record so we recorded the first song at my cousin's studio and then uh from there i started just really taking it serious so you're basically just freestyling and then yeah um and in Southside Chicago, I mean, it's, yeah. there's a pretty big music yeah. uh, influence there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, it just wasn't really, a, uh, at that time, it really wasn't a Chicago industry like it is now. Like, there was an industry, and it'll be something called Chicago Writing Sessions. And there, like, I remember Kanye used to go there. Uh, these producers called The Interns, which is co-signing too, which did the um, the Big Sean ass record. Like, I think they met at Chicago Writing Sessions. Um, I met too there, and he's currently, like, VP of A&R Dev Jam right now. Like, I met him at 16 years old um, i met da who did the uh tiger records um i met him at chicago writing sessions like it's a lot of these people that i've just known you know probably you know 13 14 years already and those writing sessions were a little bit later in your in your career that's actually when i was 16 17 so it was called chicago oh, okay. writing sessions and they weren't actually studio sessions it was like industry networking meetup thing it was uh hosted by this uh, guy named kevin shine uh, if i'm not mistaken and he would just throw these things. I think it's like every Saturday, I think, you know, and me and Ad too would go there. We actually, um, I think we all met at the studio. I forgot which studio it was, uh, but they had a flyer for it. And then we just ended up going there. And then I think my first performance around that time, I think Sunkiss was throwing like a, a 
a competition or something like that. So that was like my first performance at like 16. I think I still got footage of that too. But it was like on the Sunkiss, you know, it was at, at, on the Sunkiss truck or whatever. So I think I just kind of caught the bug, you know, from there, from just the writing sessions and just being around that element as well as, you know, performing on that truck. At that time in high school and kind of a couple years after at Columbia, was that like a, a career option for you or is it more like a hobby? So, so when, before I went to Columbia, you know, I transferred school. So I went to Luther South freshman and sophomore year and I ended up transferring to Richards because I think they're about to kick me out. So my mom was just like, we're just going to pull you out to school. Like you got too many detentions and all that stuff. You know, it wasn't nothing bad really. Like, yeah. A couple of fights, but it was just mainly just me not going to class because I was bored, you know? Um, so I just ended up transferring to Richards and Richards where Dwayne Wade went and all these people and stuff. At that time, I think I was getting really good. If I wasn't good, I was pretty much good. I was a battle rapper initially. And I went to Richards. And instead of doing sports and anything, I was just hanging out with like the people that rap pretty much. So I had kind of the same situation at Richards as far as just like, you know, grades sucked or whatever. So the church I was going to at the time, they had a college, uh, a college tour or whatever, and they was taking us down south. And the thing I noticed was my GPA was trash. So I'm like, I'm definitely not going to college. So, you know what I'm saying? And then that time I'm doing dumb, you know, just dumb stuff out there or whatever. Just like, I'm either going to die or go to jail, you know? And then my mom kind of forced me to go to this orientation at this place called Columbia. So I go to Columbia and it would just look way different than those down South schools because it was like more, you know, they're like more technologically advanced. And I was, I like that stuff. I like futuristic kind of stuff or whatever. So I remember just going to the dorms and, you know, they had like you, like a whole cafeteria of just like food you could just buy and stuff like that. And, you know, the dorms look different, had your own bathroom and stuff like that. And my mom was like, yeah, I, I can tell you when to go here. So luckily for me, they had something called a bridge program, which is basically if your grades suck, you just go to this little summer program. If you can pass that, you can get into the school. So I passed and I got into the school and that school literally changed my life. So I actually promote Columbia so much like you know, when people come ask me for advice and stuff like this, I always try to tell people you should go to Columbia. Even if you don't finish four years, you go there, you'll meet so many people that you're going to know 10, 15, 20 years from now that it's in this industry and it will help it will help you out, you know, in the long term as well as the short term. That's interesting because a lot of people might hear the advice that it's either you go to college and you get a regular job or you buy into music and uh don't even worry about college so it's interesting here because it's a, is it the connections it, it, for you it's, that's it's the most important the connections. part like when i say what 2014 just like the alumni program we have so many prestigious people that is came out of columbia like even the people i just named you know co-signed it too but the president of music at warner brothers like mm. he went to columbia i met him at warner brothers studio you know what i'm saying it's like these people you know it's just so many people that works in movies tv i think uh lena Lena Rafe, uh, Lena, I think, yeah, I think that's her name. I hope I didn't butcher her name, you know, but she, <laughs> you know, did the shy that's on Showtime and all this stuff. Like, and she was in Ready Player One and stuff. Like, she went to Columbia. You know, Jeremiah went to Columbia for a bit. That's how he met uh, his producer, uh, the dude who did birthday sex. Uh, I think uh, Matthew Schultz, if that, I think that's his name. Yeah. So, no, Mick Schultz, sorry, Mick Schultz. Like, I think they met at Columbia. Like, so many people, like, I remember seeing Jeremiah perform. He had a single before birthday sex, and we used to have this thing called Big Mouth, which was our open mic um, at Columbia. And I remember Jeremiah singing, uh, forgot the name of something, it's called like My Ride or something like that. So I remember him performing there. So it's just like, and you see where Jeremiah's at, you know, like Cosign, somebody I looked up to. Like I say, he did Big Shine Ass, he did uh, the Justin Bieber record, he did, I think he was part of Anaconda, you know, for Nicki Minaj. Like 
he graduated. Like he was one of the reasons I went to Columbia because during the orientation, mm-hmm. they were coming, they were coming back from this program they have called Semester in LA. And he was just talking about Semester in LA. And I remember my mom said, That could be you, Marcus, that could be you. You know, so he was somebody I actually looked up to. And I remember uh, like I said, I used to be a battle rapper. So uh, at Columbia they had like a battle rap competition and I, I won. Um, and I remember he was there because his friend uh, Matthew, who's the homie now, he was uh, he was hosting it. So Cosign came just to see what was going on. I ended up winning. I said some line I forgot, and Cosign like had a mink coat, and he just like threw it on the ground and walked out like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then from there, I won the competition. And so from there, um, I think the part of the competition, like winning, like you get some prize money, and then you get like a single or like a mixtape produced or recorded or something like that. So we ended up going to cosign's house and uh he was just playing me beats and you know he was like okay i get you're a battle rapper but you know you gotta learn how to make songs i was just like how do you do that blah 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 so he put me on with this uh, rapper who's a chicago legend his name is q billa and he called me and the crazy thing about this is remember when i was telling you about chicago writing sessions these people don't even remember that they knew like they met me before you know what i'm saying so it's just crazy like going from 16 17 at these chicago writing sessions and then Fast forward, you know, three, four years later, I'm me- I'm actually able to talk to these people, you know, as a peer, pretty much. And I just remember, mm-hmm. like, Q would tell me, like, yo, this is how you write a song, blah, 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 blah. So I just, and then one thing, which is why I'm glad I'm really having this conversation with you in that studio. So I remember it to this day. Cosign literally told me, he said, if you do not have any money to do this music shit, don't do it. And I never understood what that meant when he first said. I was like, he's, is he making me give up on my dream? But, <laughs> you know, going forward, he's 100% right. What does he mean by that? He means, like, if you can't, if you don't, it, it takes a lot of money to become successful in his music business. And at first, I didn't get it. But, you know, because for me, I'm a hustler. Like, I, I just, I always figure it out. But then it comes a point when you want to get to that next level, you have to pay for a publicist. You have to pay for studio time. You got to pay for beats. You got to pay, you know, this person. You got to, you know what I'm saying? When you're first doing shows and you're traveling, luckily for me, when I did my first shows out the state, they paid for my flight. But most of the time, they're not paying for your flight. So how are you going to get there? You know what I'm saying? So usually when people think about managers and stuff, the manager is usually the person that kind of funds that person's career, even though the manager shouldn't or doesn't have to do that. He usually does it if he really believes in the artist. But that's usually what happens. Like there's some investor or something that is putting the finances behind an artist. So I just understood what he meant by that. So my whole goal was always, once I figured it out, was how do I get the money to fund my dream? Or how do I, I don't even say dream anymore. How do I get the money to fund my business? Because that's what this is. This is a startup. Like if you look at the music business as like a startup or whatever, you kind of look at things different. So I don't even look at the music business as a music business. I look at it as a sales business. So how would a sales company operate? Like how would Tesla operate? And I kind of just position my mind to think like that. And I think that has helped me so much in my career to just think like that. Like instead of looking at you know, blogs like Rap Radar or something like that. I'm looking at 8.com. I'm looking at Forbes. I'm looking at Hypebot. I'm looking at all these music business things to understand what's happening in our industry and how can I maneuver as an independent artist. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're thinking about it in exactly the right way yeah. where, uh, at least in the past, artists and songwriters and producers all thought that, you know, they're just the creative. Yeah. And they're just they're just there to make music, but really they're the CEO. Yeah. You know, there's the one, they're the ones making decisions and they do need that capital. Yeah. You know, like us, there's a thousand great ideas that for businesses that never get started because no one has the money to do it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's really, really interesting to hear that. Mm-hmm. 
so like how did you how did you get started with the business? You got these people teaching you how to write write songs. What what kind of happened after that? Okay, so I go to Columbia. Um, it was this cat named Doughboy. So he was like a rapper that a lot of people I knew from writing sessions. They I just realized they all went to Columbia too. Um, so like they were kind of pushing him. And uh, I think I when I first got to Columbia, I was like I said I was a battle rapper. So people knew me for battle rapping and stuff. And uh, this kid named Slot A, you know, he was a producer. I think he went to Columbia for a bit, uh, but he was just still around. You know, he made really good beats. And this is a time when like Fifty Cent and all that stuff was doing good. So we would try to chase like the Fifty Cent in the club kind of records, like not none of his street mm-hmm. stuff, because end of the day, what made 50 Cent, in my opinion, what made 50 Cent, 50 Cent is his singles, like the, in the clubs, the uh, P-I-M-P, two, you know, 21 questions, like, I think that's what catapulted his career on top of his image. So we would make songs like that, like these club party songs or whatever, and then I would perform them. I just remember like, this when MySpace was popping and I, I don't know if you remember on MySpace where people, like, you can go on different people's pages and like, on the comments, you'll see like, pictures and all that stuff too. So I just mm-hmm. had somebody create like, click here to listen to the number one MySpace single, blah, blah, blah. So I would do that. I was just getting so many play. I was getting so many plays on MySpace and stuff. And then promoters uh, would hit me up. So I think maybe my freshman, it might've been freshman year of college or sophomore year of college. I think I got booked in Nebraska. Yeah. I got booked in Nebraska and it was like 600 bucks. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. I made 600 bucks for 15 minutes. And then right after that, I got booked in Appleton, Wisconsin for 1200. And this is the first time I heard of something called a writer, you know, and people who don't know what a writer is basically like you get to give a list of demands on stuff you want. So for me, I was like, Jack Daniels and M&Ms and <laughs> chips and this and that, you know what I'm saying? So after that, I think I was just hooked. Like, wow, I just got paid 1200. Cause I remember before this, I never had a job or anything. You know what I'm saying? I didn't do anything really. It's just like just music stuff and just going to college and stuff like that. And hindsight, I probably, should have got like a college job and stuff, you know, just to make more extra money. But I think I got hooked once I got paid for 600 bucks, then 1200 bucks. And I just like from there, I was like, I have to figure this thing out. But the, on the flip side of when you're performing like that and you don't have like a label or anything like that, one thing I did realize is I didn't understand how people are traveling in entourages. I was like, if I have to travel with five or 10 people, to go do this show that I'm only getting paid 600 or 1200 bucks for, I will always like never have any money, nor could I afford it. So for me, it kind of just made a change. Like I'm never going to make like gangster street music or whatever. Like even cause back then my name used to be bullet, but as bullet, it was just like, I was still doing, like I said, the club stuff, I was doing more futuristic stuff like that. And this is before the whole, you know, little Wayne is talking about Martians and, you know, kid Cuddy with his space thing. Like I can actually show people like what my MySpace used to look like um, and all that stuff. And it was like literally just spaced out and it was these, futuristic beats and stuff you know that i was just doing but i realized you know if i stick with that and i think at the time i wasn't really cursing and i actually wasn't cursing that was my hook like i'm not cursing in these records but you can't tell i'm not cursing in these records unless i tell you hey you know i didn't curse in that song right so that was kind of my hook like oh his name is bullet but he doesn't curse like that was the mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so that was like my hook and i was getting uh, you know a, a lot of press because of that but um I would just travel by myself and it just felt good. Like, oh, I can come to the show by myself, make money, stay in a hotel or, you know, kick it with the promoter or kick it with girls or whatever like that and just go home, you know, compared to, like you said, at that time with like 50 Cent and all that, they running around with bulletproof vests and 50, 100 people. And I'm just like, they got to cost a lot of money, bro. So, yeah. you, you know, so, you know, just like a lot of stuff I just figured out that sophomore year of college. Gotcha. So that's when the gears started to turn. You, yeah. you realize yeah. this is this is something I can make make money. Yes, on. yes, yes, definitely. And um, 
I feel like right after that, that's when the cool kids start blowing up, uh, Mikey Rocks and Chuck English. And uh, uh, Mikey went to my school. So he was, I was on the, we stayed in the same dorm. I was like one floor above him or whatever. So when they came out, that's when like the industry landscape pretty much changed. And I give them like 99% of the credit, you know, because they were doing this independent. Um, they had the image down packed and everything. Because, you know, if you remember, like when the cool kids came out, then there was this kid, Mickey Fax and Pat Div and all these people that, would, you know, Kid Cudi came out around that time as well. And I feel like the cool kids really kicked that off. Like Lupe kind of started it, in my opinion. You know, just being from Chicago, I feel like Lupe and then the cool kids. Then you had people mm-hmm. like Kids in the Hall and Pat Div, Kid Cudi um, and all these people. So uh, it was interesting to me watch how the industry was changing right in front of my eyes. Because like I said, like, this is before skinny jeans and stuff like that. And then I'm looking at Mikey in skinny jeans. I'm like, what is going on here? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, so like literally I'm watching this and they just have all my respect. Chuck English is one of the realest people I've probably ever met in this industry. Super down to earth, super cool. One of the my favorite producers ever. And it was just interesting just seeing everything just kind of bubble up at that time. And I learned a lot. Like how I learned is I don't necessarily ask people for advice unless they give it to me, but I'll just see what's successful for this person and I try to figure it out. Like, oh, this is what they have. Oh, I didn't even know what a publicist was at that time. But when I'm mm-hmm. Looking at them like they're on the like back when Rhapsody was around the uh, the the music streaming thing, like they had a Rhapsody commercial, and um, I was like, how are they getting this stuff? And the crazy thing is, this is back when like music videos wasn't even as prevalent as it is now. Like back then, if you had a music video, you was doing something. So it's like they had their music video for Black Mags, and it was just, like this big thing. And I was just looking at it like, how are they getting all this press? How are they doing this? How are they doing that? And you know, so I just looked at their contact section, and it was like for publicity and pr contact this person and i was like oh i need to get a publicist so (laughs) i did i'm not sure if this is illegal what i did so basically what i did was for my following year of college i just took out more than what i needed for student loans and i basically used that to to hire a publicist at that time gotcha you because up because up until then you were basically just doing all your own publicity yeah literally you were going on myspace and and doing the doing the comments with uh, with these images yes. and, and kind of like bootstrapping around exactly and how I, and at the time of the big site like how we this was before the blog era the big rap site was hiphopgame.com. so what I would used to do was like I have to get on there because I think that's how Lupe blew up through Hip Hop Game putting his music on there and a few other people just went through Hip Hop Game like they used to have all the exclusives and stuff so what I used to do was uh, act as my own manager so I just created a fake email and I'll just act like my own manager and then I'll be like hey such and such this is my artist blah 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 can we post them on here and that's how i got a lot you know the few press things that i did get did get it, it happened like that before i got a publicist nice i think uh we've heard a couple stories about people that are at least like feigning like oh yeah this is you got to talk to my manager yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but it's just on another email yeah. and it works you know <laughs> yep. cool what happens after you get out of school so after school uh let's see columbia da-da-da-da. you're you're touring around a little bit. You got some got some cash coming in. Yeah, I got cash What's coming in. On? So actually what happens is, so back to the cool kids, they had a song at Entourage. And I was like a huge fan of Entourage. And just a little quick tidbit for everybody, like Entourage is the reason I moved to LA. Like I didn't know what I was doing in my life. I was just like, you know, and then I just watched Entourage. Like, you know, I just, I think I probably caught him on the season three and I just binge watch, you know, from season one to season three. I was like, I have to move to LA. So the crazy thing is my guy Todd, he was talking about this company called Music Dealers. So Music Dealers, for everybody that doesn't know, is a music library. And I think at the time, it's like the first of its kind. And because uh, I think only ones I've heard of at that time was like Taxi.com or something like that. So mm-hmm. with Sinks, I didn't know you got paid for that. So when I'm looking at the cool kids and Entourage, I'm like, 
how do you, I want my song in a TV show, whatever. And I didn't know you got paid for that. So yeah. he hooked me up with the vice president. His name is, uh, we call him JW, his name is John Williamson. He was like the VP or, or president over at Music Dealers. And so he's like, oh, you should holler at my guy John or JW. Um, you know, they put music and TV and film. I was like, cool. So I, I, I connect with JW. And um, he was like, yeah, we actually all kind of already know about you. We talk about you around the office. So I was like, cool. So I, I put my song, uploaded my songs, and uh, I think I got my first placement maybe three to six months later, and it was for a thousand bucks. And initially, at the time, you know, they take fifty percent, and I think twenty five percent of publisher fifty. I forgot, but for me, it was like, wow, there's a thousand bucks all in gross. I think I made five hundred bucks. And I was like, wow, what it took me selling to like 1,200 people to make that same amount of money for a song to just play in a scene for a minute. So like that just kind of just hooked my brain around syncs. But at the same time, this is when EDM starts becoming like this huge thing. So I remember I, went, I had a song. This, I changed my name to Mr. Robotic like 2009, 2010. And the reason I was able to change my name was... Uh, like I said, my name used to be Bullet. So I did the song called Mr. Robotic, and it was a really great song. It was number one on DJGoof.net and all that stuff. Shout out Z, because they were really promoting me at the time. It was like number one on there, and everybody was like, you should just change it. I knew I couldn't keep the name Bullet. So I was like, Bullet, a.k.a. Mr. Robotic. Like That was my thing. And then my website designer, Tom, he was just like, well, it's going to be kind of hard to brand two names, so you need to pick one or the other. So I was like, okay, I'm Mr. Robotic now. And I kind of caught some flack around it but most people understood it because at the time like you were all, the big blog in chicago was fake short drive so i would be on fake short drive a lot and people know me as bullet in chicago and all that stuff so once i kind of changed my name everybody's like oh sell out blah 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 i'm like whatever i don't care i make more money than y'all um <laughs> so uh so that happened so the crazy thing is now everything is about to be back to back to back so basically i get my first placement called hit the dance floor that was a big deal as nobody i really knew was really talking about syncs or when you hear people's music and tv and film at the time nobody was promoting it like you didn't know who it was so that was the first angle i took when i was getting placements was i'm gonna try to get publicity around this because a, a, a separate publicist i had that i paid like 800 bucks or something like that she disappeared for a month for personal issues then she tried to come back the following month and i was like hey so can we start up again and i'm like well i already paid you so can we move forward with what i paid you for the month and she was just like yeah then she disappeared again and i was just like okay i don't want to deal with uh, pr anymore my angle was anytime i had a placement uh i'll just reach out to like certain press outlets and stuff like that like hey i got this placement in jersey shore but prior to jersey shore back when we said edm was good i mean was getting bigger I was trying to get on B96, which is our huge pop radio station. Uh, I think it's probably like number three in the country, if I'm not mistaken. But that was it. It's like everybody is rapping and everybody wants, you know, WGCI and Power 92. Let me go over here. And that's another thing I'm going to explain to people, the benefits of just kind of staying in your own lane. Because remember, if I come from rap, if I come from rap, I already know how to rap. I already know the rap. I got my respect there. But also, I know that they can't do this EDM stuff. I know they can't do pop. They don't know how to write songs like this. So that was kind of my edge of why I've been able to kind of just maneuver the way I've been maneuvering all these years. So when I tried to get on B96, it was only for the mix show. I forgot the mix show DJ's name, and I wish I knew his name. But he tried to charge me like 2500 bucks to spend my song on a mix show. And I was like, I'm not paying that. I'm cool. So I get, you know, I get in my bag, and I was like, Okay, let me find out every mix show DJ that's on B96. And I found them all on MySpace. So I hit up pretty much every mix show DJ on B96. I hit them on MySpace. One hit me back. One's manager hit me back and said, yeah, I'll send this song to uh, his name, DJ Bam Bam. So he's like, I'll send a song to him. So I was like, cool. So Bam Bam hit me back, was like, this song is really dope, but 
it's not my style, so I'm going to send you some beats, and you just rap over that. And I was like, okay, cool. So he sent me the beat. He sent me three beats, and I did, did it to one song. By the time he was done with the song, it just sounded totally different. It was crazy. I was like, oh, my God. So it's called Watch the Club Go. Now, Watch the Club Go, it's pretty much broke me as an artist, pretty much, because that song went number one on Beatport. That actually got me on B96. Like, they were playing it all over Chicago. They were playing it in the clubs. Um, a lot of the top DJs were playing it. Zed was playing it. Like, everybody was playing it. But the problem with that is, and this is me not having a manager or anything like that, I didn't know what that meant. Like, I didn't know what being number one on Beatport was. I didn't, I understood me being on a radio and mix show and stuff like that. But it's like, how do I take advantage of this? So at that time, a lot of the big DJs would hit me up or it'll be DJs that's big now, but they were still coming up then. They would hit me up and uh, ask me for vocals and stuff like that. So one thing I regret is what I should have done was like not charge anybody anything. I could have, should have just did it for free. And then that way I can just perform the song with them when they're doing these huge festivals. So that's something I do kind of regret. But, you know, you live and you learn. Hindsight is 2020. So with that song uh, doing number one and it's doing its thing, people finding out about me even more. At the same time, this is when Jersey Shore is this huge phenomenon. So I had a song called Earth Girls on Jersey Shore. And at the time, I'm not sure if they still do it, but MTV would put the artist in the song at the bottom of the screen. So at that time, Jersey Shore is about to go. And what I used to do, this is before Spotify was anything. And I think I've actually done press about this. What I would, before Jersey Shore came out, I did press, I, I got press on NBC, Chicago, and like three other things. And I didn't allow for the song to be free. I just put it on YouTube. I put it on YouTube and then I said, hey, if you want, if you want this song, you have to buy it off iTunes. You know, like and so I basically use YouTube as streaming, and then people actually want to buy the song, they have to get it from iTunes. I wasn't giving it out for free or anything. So literally it aired and I sold six thousand singles that weekend. And that song, Damn. yeah, like that was when I figured it out. And then the other bad mistake I didn't make, I didn't register the song, you know, so I could probably could have got it charted. Because I think you, at that time, you only needed to sell like 4,000 copies or 5,000 copies, but I didn't have it like registered on the BDS or whatever it is that ch actually helps with the charts or whatever. So I was like, oh, I wish I knew that at the time. But yeah, so 6,000 singles. And then I also got so many fans. People were tweeting me on Twitter like, what is this Earth Girl song? Blah, blah, blah. And I think that weekend it got like, you know, 100,000 views or something like that. And that just led to people just following me more on YouTube. So at that time, I had Watch the Club go, and I got this song doing Jersey Shore, and all these people are following me. People were buying merchandise. Like, I figured out the merchandise game back then as well. So people were, like, buying shirts. I would hold little contests on Facebook before Facebook banned contests and stuff like that. Uh, so this is all prior to moving to L.A. So with the sync stuff, so I had that placement. It's called a, it was a show. It, only, it was a pilot. It only aired once. It was called A Beautiful Life. And it was, I think it was starting, starring Corbin Blue from um, High School Musical. It was playing while he was DJing. I just thought that was super cool. Then I had the Jersey Shore and I had a ton of MTV stuff. And my friend Alicia Davis, who worked at ASCAP at the time, uh, she connected me with this guy named MJ. So MJ was basically like a music plugger. Like, you know, he'll pitch your songs to TV and film and stuff like that. So with him, it was the same splits. It was 50%, uh, 50%. But when I got with him, more placements started coming and because I was able to sign off on them so quick, but I was getting like $3,000 placements, $5,000 placements, $2,000 placements, you know, and obviously I have to split with him. But in my head, I was just like, okay, how can I expand on this? And I was like, okay, you know, these people are only getting 50% because they know somebody. So my hustle was to get placements with them, stay loyal to them, but also let me go find people that I could deliver the music to directly so that way I don't have to do splits.
As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties that are getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. go back really quick to earth girls and like you got that placement Mm -hmm. it released people saw your name on the screen Mm -hmm. was it orchestrated like did you have that planned out before like oh we're gonna it's gonna get synced people will see it on tv yes and here's how they're gonna be able to get it from me yes was the result expected with that or was that more of a surprise i didn't think i was gonna sell that much i just knew that because usually they'll tell you like hey i forgot what it's called but it's called something where they put your name on there they have a specific term for it so once i knew that was happening and my name was going to be there and like i said jersey shore was huge at the time i think that episode had six million something viewers so i was like oh six million people literally heard my song that time so i just knew something was going to happen for me i didn't know about the sales or anything like that i just knew let me my whole thing was just trying to get press like i want to get publicity um and stuff like that from um you know just from these placements or whatever because i didn't have a publicist at the time so my whole way of thinking was how do i translate these placements and make a story about how this guy is building a fan base from TV and film placements. Like that's been my whole kind of thing outside of just doing the EDM, you know, doing EDM stuff. Cause with EDM is mainly DJ and producer based. So me as a vocalist and me doing rap vocals or singing vocals and stuff like that, it's like, it's good, but obviously DJs get booked way more than just like an EDM vocalist or something like that. So mm-hmm. I just always had to try to figure out a way to just like, how do I keep my name out there? So with this, even with the sales, you know, I just used it and reinvested back into what I was doing. So I think I bought a website, you know, a real good looking website, you know, like not the typical artist website. Cause I knew like, you know, uh, perception is reality. So if somebody sees like a high end website and stuff like that, they, they're willing to pay a certain much cause they, think you're already making, you know, this amount of money. So they can't really shortchange you because it's like, wait a minute, he got this amazing site. He's getting placements. He's doing the shows. He's doing this. He's doing that. So they can never come at me with like a small number. That's why real estate agents are always driving really fancy cars. Exactly. People think, oh, they must sell houses, a lot of houses because they're driving a nice car. Exactly. (laughs) Same thing with just a nice website. Exactly. And then the other reason I focused on placements was because I realized that a lot of rappers they were so focused on blogs and, you know, at the time I was getting a blog, I was on Not Right, I was on the Two Dope Boys, I was, you know, beat out from Rap Radar, actually tweeted about me. <laughs> like, I forgot what he said. He's like, quiet is kept, uh, but Mr. Robotic is doing way more than your average underground sewer rapper or something like that. He said something like that. And I actually, prior to that, 
uh, I just realized I was doing something right because I actually got booked to perform for New Year's Eve. And he didn't mention the, the promoter when they were bringing me out. He didn't mention any of the blogs. He was just like, you've heard him on MTV. You heard him on ESPN. You heard him on here. Blah, blah, blah. You heard him on B96 out here. Blah, blah, blah. You know, here's Mr. Robotic. And once I noticed he didn't mention any blogs, I was like, okay, I need to focus on placements because that's what's getting me out there even more. And then something happened with Rat Radar because they were supposed to start documenting me. This is right before Macklemore and them came out and they were supposed to start documenting me on Rat Radar. That was the other reason I moved to LA because I was like, let me be in LA. Let me do this. I can actually film like robotic moves to LA, you know, and I already had shows booked in LA as well. And, you know, I wanted them to document me, you know, so they could uh, and have me on Rat Radar because I thought it would be cool that a guy named Mr. Robotic is on Rat Radar. Like, you know, he has to be dope with that kind of name on a site like rat radar so, so i think i just got upset because they didn't document me and this journal just journalist uh named william ketchums he's a really big journalist i think he's over at vibe right now at the time uh he was just like bro don't trip on it you know you really just need to focus on the sinks like focus on tv film you know and video games and stuff like that don't worry about the blogs anymore so i really just took that advice and really just ran with it i focused on standing my lane in dance music and standing my lane with the tv film and sinks and it just kind of just really worked out for me how did people know how to get in touch with you? Because you say a lot of artists think when they're just getting into it that if you make the best song, mm-hmm. it will find a home, but it's just not. A lot of the work is making yourself available and getting people to find you. And like yeah. that's a big question for a lot of people. So how did you do that? Uh, mainly just Twitter at that time and YouTube. Like a lot of people hit me in my YouTube comments at the time. Like this is like six years ago. Like people just always hit me in my YouTube comments or they'll just add me on Twitter. And I think this is when Twitter was really made. Like there's been kind of a resurgence with Twitter lately. Like mm-hmm. if you remember when Twitter first came out, there was this thing called like Follow Fridays and stuff like that. Like it was really a beneficial platform for artists, in my opinion. You know, so I just really built that. People would add me, I'll always respond. And my YouTube had all my contact information. And a good thing about you know, I knew about domain names early. So actually somebody else had the domain for Mr. Robotic, but they wasn't using it because I guess, you know, there's a domain hustle out there where you buy it for cheap and sell it for, you know, a lot of money. Um, yep. So dude just kind of knew who I was and he actually just gave it to me for 300 bucks. So I actually got the domain for Mr. Robotic and it was easy to just to like Google me and say, you want to look me up? MrRobotic.com is right there. And people would just find me on there. So I think it was a interconnection between my social media and my website and stuff like that as well. And then obviously when I'm doing stuff with these DJs as well, they're tweeting about me as well. Um, so I think all of that just kind of helped, you know, uh, people find me. And you seem like a person that just like leverages technology, whatever's there. Yeah. MySpace back in the day. And, yep. and then Twitter comes up and you start yep. using that. So yep. <laughs> um, it's definitely super important for, for anyone coming up to, to look and see what the landscape is. It's, it's hard to you know, make a splash on something that's, uh, that's already kind of established, but finding the stuff that's like brand new and you, you can get in there is, is, yeah. seems like it's most important. Exactly. Thing. And that's why I think the sync stuff was working out. Cause like I said, at the time you really did not know whose music you're listening to. So I think that's one of the things I just really took advantage of just being like, yo, that's me. That's my song. Like, blah, blah. you know what I'm saying? And, and I think, uh, that's just, like I said, that's really helped me get press a lot. Like, you know, I was like on a front page of ASCAP and, you know, Chicago Sun-Times, like just different things like that. And I just remember my friend Alicia, the one I worked at ASCAP, she was like, why are you getting press for this? Like, how? Like, it's a million people that's doing things. And I actually laughed and I was like, you know what? You're right. hundred percent. But like I said, I just think people were not promoting it as prevalent as they're doing now. Like now you got shows like, you know, with Insecure or, you know, even, even when Entourage was going on, and it had all these amazing songs. I barely ever seen an artist promote it. 
ever. Like I've never seen somebody say, "Hey, check my song out on Entourage." You know, I just I don't think I've ever seen it, if not once or twice. But now with shows that are so bait, where the music has to be good, you know, shows like Insecure and um, what's another one? I'm trying to think of another show where it was like you care about the music. Like now, those artists are really promoting it because, like they, like you say, it's another uh, stream of income. Like even Thirteen Reasons Why, like the songs from there, they start charting. You know what I'm saying? Because it's a the placement is correct and the artist is actually promoting it. And you're just like, who is this artist? Or if you already know the artist, you're just like, wow, I love this song for this. You know, and they go stream it. So I just think syncs just work in a way where it's knocking out, you know, five or six birds with one stone. That mm-hmm. one song can get you promotion, it gets you money, because uh, you get the master and the publishing. Um, you get the streaming income and you get the popularity. Like I said, like if it's the right show, the this the right scene you know, the right placement and people gravitate towards it. I mean, it's a career changer for most, for most people. I think about like Imagine Dragons, like how they're synced so much and it really helps. I think it really helps their music, you know, d- does what it does, you know? Um, you know, and, and it's a few artists that actually have like a, a placement, like an Apple commercial or a, a, a truck commercial or something like that. And it went on and defined their careers. Yeah. I've definitely been that listener of uh, being in a TV show and the placement's perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, I'm going to go, listen to that on spotify right now and save it and then listen to it a hundred more times it's probably those streaming platforms that have really driven that because before discovering music you had to be listening to the radio driving down the road and then you really like a song you pull over into the record store and buy that record exactly like now it's so easy to whip out your phone save something listen to it so that's definitely changed is how how has streaming um from your perspective changed um you know your your kind of thing because you're you're doing something different where it's you're you're writing music for tv and film uh but it's also really has some commercial appeal and you have kind of this fan base so like how has streaming changed your your business of of Uh, your catalog well because i like when i did that youtube thing back when the jersey short placement happened i always knew that we were going and people in this documented i've been saying this since 2012 that everything is about to be about access so i think streaming opened up about access over ownership like do you really want to you know, yeah, we're thinking about it now as far as like that. I miss opening a CD and stuff like that. But like you said, you also had to go to the store to buy that CD compared to just going on your phone. So I already knew and I tested it out with that YouTube. Like, hey, if you want this song, buy it off iTunes and not just listening to it on YouTube. Either way, I'm getting paid. Um, and I figured that out, like access over ownership. That's what we want. And uh, a lot of the business models are like that. Uber doesn't own anything. But, you know, you have access to the platform and the cars like Netflix, you know, all this stuff like you don't own any of the content on Netflix, but you have access to all of it and you pay ten dollars a month. So mm-hmm. I, I just kind of figured that out early. So it's just like, how do I how do I make my business in a way to actually capitalize on that? So back with syncs and stuff like that, it's like what other way? Like if, if, if you are an unsigned artist or independent artist, it's two different things. But, you know, if you're unsigned or independent, don't want to work a job. What better way to have your music make money for you to do music? Yeah. That is the only way I've ever looked at it. And I think that's why I've been able to kind of just maneuver in a way where it's like, even when I'm stressed out or, you know, a check doesn't come on time, whatever, I've always just kind of figured out like, how do I make my music make money for me to continue making music? And I think that's one of the, you know, that is the perfect business model. Cause no matter what, I can go record a song. No matter what, I have a catalog of music that I can go say, hey, such and such company, like, 
would you want to use this song for this or you know what I'm saying? Like there's always ways to make money or, you know, if you're popping at the time, you could charge for features or, you know, you can, if you have producers, you can help get them, you know, placements or whatever, or you can be the middleman if the artist needs beats and you know, the producer and the producer isn't really a sales guy like that. You can be like, okay, I'll broker this deal for you to sell this beat. Just give me 10, 20%. Like there's just so many ways in the music business to make money. If you just look at it, as a sales job. Mm. And I think, I think that's how I've looked at everything. And I try to tell people that like, I do not look at the music business as, cause that's why artists get screwed so much. They're looking at this as a creative business. Like once you get the, once you put in your 10,000 hours, it is not that hard to make a hit song. Mm. In my personal opinion, once you have your 10,000 hours, you make a song. And even now you don't even need 10,000 hours. People are literally doing demo records and they're becoming hits. Like if you listen to a lot of these songs where they're just, um, harmonizing or humming and stuff like that stuff i do when i'm about to demo a record mm. you know like but now their demo records are literally the you know number one on you know spotify or number one on the charts it's a one minute two minute song of them saying the same thing over and over so it's just mm. like with that you should look at that as a good thing because it's like well if they're able to do it with that imagine what you can do if you're actually like super talented or whatever um so it's just like once you get that 10 percent down of how do i make a song now you got to figure out that 90 percent of how do i sell this song how do i monetize it mm. so i just think music the music business is one of the few businesses where there's a low barrier of entry to make so much money if you just know what you're doing mm. how do people respond when you tell them that music is is more sales than creative and more business than creative i mean do, do people understand that or are they do they yeah like when i when i explain it to them like for example how everybody was like kind of shitting on the 360 deal like I'm, I, I tell them do you do you watch shark tank because everybody seems to love shark tank and i'm like not sure if you i tell them like i'm not sure if you know but the deals they're doing are 360 deals and when they buy a piece of the company, they don't just get profits from one thing that the the company is selling. They get it from all the products, hmm. all of them. So it goes back to my theory from 2012. You have to be treat yourself like a startup. And the music business is one of the only places where if you treat yourself like a startup, you have you are a product. Your merchandise is the product. The music is the product. Uh, Sinks, you know, selling music to TV and film is the business to business model. Selling music to fans is the B two C model. Like if you just look at it that way, I just think it would change most people's lives if mm. they look at it that way because they they wouldn't they wouldn't half ass anything. They would present like if McDonald's gave you a crappy burger, you want to give it back right yeah. <laughs> you know what i'm saying so presentation that's why i said earlier perception is reality so it's like if you look at it from like this isn't just a creative business this is a sales business you're going to make sure everything is on point you're going to make sure your cover art is on point because you're presenting it to people to buy and i think you're shortchanging people when you don't put forth your best effort and that's why a lot of people don't sell like that that's why a lot of people we deem as like untalented or you know they wouldn't make it 10 years ago we put them in that category because we know they're half-assed and what they're doing but because like you said that's the kind of the flip side of streaming is even if it's a bad song you're you but it's catchy you're just going to listen to it over and over again because you're not really paying for that song but if you have to spend your last 10 bucks on most of these people's album 80% of these people wouldn't exist, mm. yeah. you know, but, yeah. but you're not spending your last on this stuff. You're just like, okay, I can just go to my Spotify and, and listen and you're done with it. You know what I'm saying? So like, even we're in the age where, you know, back in the day where they used to say, all, you know, even bad publicity, it's good publicity. We're literally in that space. There are literally companies doing horrible things just because they know people are going to talk about them. Mm. 
Mm. You know, so as long as people are talking about you, they're good. So I wouldn't even necessarily say the music business is just a sales business, but I think it's a sales and marketing business, uh, sales and marketing business. Mm -hmm. You are using music to market everything, uh, to market everything else. Mm. That's where I think we're at. That's fascinating. I mean, like the, the idea that if someone's last $10, uh, like the, the punishment that they feel for like you know, choosing some, like a bad album or something or something they really it's, don't enjoy is completely yeah. taken away. Right. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Right. right. Like I think, I think about that a lot. I think about like when people go, like, for example, the whole Popeye's craze that just happened with the chicken sandwich. Mm-hmm. And I think about it, like, what if the sandwich was trash? Like w- you, you would be mad if you spent, you waiting in line for an hour, two hours, you spent your five bucks or whatever, and then the hype just wasn't real. Mm-hmm. You would be upset. People would be like, Popeyes would be out of business, in my opinion. Like, you know, if the if the news was reversed, if it was like more bad news, like, oh man, that sandwich was trash. Like, instead of like, this is the best sandwich I ever had. So I just kind of put that in music terms, where it's like, dag, like if people bought this album and it's trash, like people like people lose their careers off that. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think about rest in peace, Nipsey Hussle, but I think about like, and thank God he's an amazing artist. He's inspired me a lot. Um, but when he was doing the hundred dollar album, I was like, he, this, he knows this album is good. Cause there's no way you're charging people a hundred bucks for this album. And it's trash. It's just no way. Yeah. That's the, you know, the price theory, I guess there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's just like, you know, it's that good. And I think you really like when you really put your foot into something, you just know, yo, this is it. Like I think Kanye could do well, not. Yeah. Yeah. Kanye could probably do the hundred dollar. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a few people I think, cause they make such amazing music where I don't even think their price should be the same price as like an artist that, you know, doesn't make as good as music as them. Mm. Like, I think Kendrick could benefit from it. Uh, you know, Drake could benefit from it. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, why are these albums priced the same as just every other artist? I just, I don't believe in that. But, you know, mm. what do I know? <laughs> Can you talk more about, like, uh, like thinking about your songs as the product or, like, the, even the yeah. business? And, like, you know, if you have a product that's, like, not selling... Like you're mm-hmm. not gonna you're not gonna try to sell it anymore. But if you have something that's really going hot, you're gonna really like reinvest in that and try to get it it back in. Like how how what's okay. your what's your feelings on that? So what so what I do is okay for my studio sessions, right? Because it starts off at the so for me for my studio sessions, I pay for everything. Like I'm literally all my money is comes from me. Like everything I fund is all mine. Like I don't have a manager, I don't have an agent, I don't have a record label. Every money I every dime I make is from sales. So. Starting off when I first started doing, you know, music and really taking it serious and going to the studio, I have to kind of just know that I have to do the right song. I have to, or I just wasted, you know, 75, 150 bucks from getting it mixed and mastered and all that stuff. I just wasted all this money. So for me, when it, even when it comes to picking beats, I have to pick a dope beat. So my ear for beats are really good because I know like, that if this beat sucks and I do a trash song, I just wasted 150 bucks. So I, you know, and then how I remember I said that with TV, I was usually using TV and film to market my song. Cause like I said, 6 million people, 3 million people, you know, listening to the song. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, how I would do the placements was I would be recording my songs for an album. So a lot of these placements I have, unless they ask me to do custom stuff, but 90% of my placements are songs that I'm doing for an album. Like, these are my songs. It's just like, but I make sure that it kind of fits, that it could fit in like a commercial or TV show and stuff like that. So I think that takes kind of a special skill to do. But nine times out of 10, how I do it is I just look at top 10 on Billboard, the 
you know, the overall billboard, not the rapper hip hop charts or pop charts. I look at overall billboard and I see what's the top 10. And I'm just like, you know, like for me, Black Eyed Peas is a huge influence on me. Will I Am is a genius, huge influence. And I, I, I try to see like, how are they writing these songs? Like, you know, why is I Got a Feeling such a big record? Like, why is Boom Boom Pow such a good record? Like, why? Why is Scream and Shout such a big record? And I kind of just try to study what they're doing and, you know, kind of just use it for myself. So if I'm come from a battle rapper, like, you know, I make sure my verses kind of fit. And then I know to, you know, treat the hook as a melody. Or if I, I feel like it needs a big vocal or whatever, I'll hire a work for hire for a singer or something like that, you know? And then I know this is going to fit for me selling it to, uh, like I said, B2B, which is like the TV film stuff or a corporation or, and I could use that money to kind of start marketing it to fans. So for me, it's just always like, I need to spend this amount of money to make this amount over here so that way I can use that money to promote it over here. So that's kind of just been my little business triangle pretty much. You got to spend the money, build it up, you know, yeah. think about all the different elements as opposed to just doing the same thing over and over again. And Exactly. And just like the, the profit margin is huge. Like I said, like half the time if my producer is in town, he's an engineer. So it's like I could record that song for free. And let's say even if you got a placement for a thousand bucks, you just turn zero dollars to a thousand bucks off one sale. And that's on the low end, you know, when it comes to things. So that's, that's, I always think about that. So now I got a thousand dollars to actually, you know, do a playlist campaign or do a, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, hire a publicist to do a press release about the song. Like, you know, so many things I could do with that thousand compared, you know, I try to tell people don't use the money that's in your pocket, you know, make a sale and use that money. It's like the real estate business. It's like, they always say never use your own money. So they use the bank's money. Mm -hmm. So I just, instead of me using the bank's money, I'm just becoming a better salesman and using that the money from the sale to fund everything and i think you know it goes back to what gary vanderchuk said he said you know entrepreneurship is going to fail in a few years because everybody is out here raising money and they're forgetting the basic principle of sales cures all and i just basically took that concept and use it for music pretty much like if i'm having if i don't if i don't get a check in time my rent does not care if my check didn't come in time for my license or, mm. you know, for, if a feature doesn't pay. So what do I have to do? I got to figure out, okay, what can I sell today to make the money? And my check will come and, you know, sorry, uh, my check will come in time. Like that's how, I, that's how I think. So I think it's about having not just songs, but it's having a few products that you can just sell every day. So for me, I dedicate three hours to syncs. I dedicate three hours to recording. I dedicate three hours to, you know, trying to sell merch or coming up with merch ideas. Like I literally spend like maybe 15, 18 hours a day on the business. There's so much stuff you can do in the music business. Some stuff that's going to provide, you know, fruit now or something that's going to provide fruit three, three, six months from now like a relationship that I built. If I spend three hours on LinkedIn or something like that, just adding contacts and they're adding me back and I'm just building a relationship with them. I might not get anything from them now. They might not get anything from me now, but when that right opportunity comes around or they might see me post something or I might, they might post something where I can actually add value to it, you know, six months later. So I literally just spend, you know, 18 hours a day just doing that stuff all day, hmm. you know, cause you, you know, it's like, it's like, when we were talking about 360 deals, I, I believe you should give yourself a 360 deal. Sign yourself to yourself and, you know, try to build all these things in the business and you'll get the money from, from it. So by the time you're ready to go sign to a label or a publisher and they try to hit you with, hey, we're going to do, you only do a 360 deal. You've already built so much of what they are probably getting a, uh, a profit from that they have to pay you more money. 
Yeah. They have to, you know what I'm saying? And it goes back to the Shark Tank theory. If you look at Shark Tank, the people who don't have any sales or whatever, they get the worst deals. The person that's making a million or two million or whatever a year, they get the best deals. Yeah. And, you know, so, and what you're saying uh, about the long game, too, of like, you know, thinking not until your next advance or not until your next um, like distribution check comes in. But like thinking, mm-hmm. you know, like a year down the line, what what relationships are going to benefit from, from you? I think it's hard to do in the music industry, but, um, you know, it's it's still important for, you know, building your career, building your catalog. Um, yeah. And getting playing that long game is is uh, crucial, I think. Right. It's super crucial. And um, Nipsey said something in an interview, which is what I based my career. He said the fame will come, you know, focus on building the foundation of the business. And I think that's the number one key here. Like, build the business first. You can buy fame. Like, I'm not sure everybody knows that. Like, you can buy being famous if you have the money to do it. Yeah. Like, and that's it. Like, everybody wants the fame first, and then they're crying about being broke later. And it's like, because you did it wrong. You're, you know what I'm saying? Like, or you're not, leverage, you're not leveraging your fame enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's one of the two. But if you built the business to a way where it's profitable and stuff, now you can hire. And I think that's what Chance is trying to say. Like, he's just saying it wrong, in my opinion, where he's trying to tell everybody, don't sign a deal. Don't do this. Don't do this. And everybody's looking at him like, well, why am I get the money to hire these people? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Well, you can get it from sales. Like, that's one thing. Even though sales is a hard job, not even talking music business anymore, just sales in general, you know, where it's commission-based. Some days you don't eat because you didn't make a sale. Some days you eat really good because you made a ton of sales. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it from that perspective, sales really does cure off. It it does. And that's in any aspect of life. You sell something. It's a transaction. You make money. Now you get to go do what you want to do. Yeah. I think that's right on. What what Mm -hmm. kind of goals do you have coming up in the next couple of years? Uh, for me, um, I've been building my company, Music and Robots, which is more so a label slash publishing company. Um, I really was looking at the business model for Position Music, um, where basically I feel like they were built off syncs as well, but now they're signing artists and stuff like that as well, you know, and they kind of just use the sync checks to fund it. That's kind of been my business model. So I just like, how do I expand on that? So I have like producers signing me right now, um, you know, with a focus on like, we uh we place music for tv and film but we also do custom music as well and then we just use that money to fund like a spotify campaign or something like that um i have my next single coming out in like three weeks you know i got a huge director eric white uh he's doing my video for it um it really just you know everything i've ever talked about is about me utilizing it's one thing i like about gary v like he doesn't just tell you what to do he actually does it and he shows you how he's doing it so i think that's what i, I took two years off to just record i moved to vegas uh, for like a year and a half. So I say a year and a half off. So I moved to Vegas for a year and a half before I came back to LA. And I just recorded that whole time. I feel like LA was, uh, I was doing too much partying and stuff. I was like, I need to get back focused. Like, am I a socialite or am I an artist? So I was like, you know, I'm acting like a socialite right now. Let me, let me leave and go off the strip in Vegas, went to the studio and I just recorded a ton of songs. And now I'm getting ready to just start putting everything out, you know, launch a website and all that stuff. I started, uh, a merchandise brand called Robo Kids, which is still connected to Mr. Robotic. Um, you know, so I've been building, getting ready to launch that in six months as well. So for me, I, my my main focus is really building an actual company. I am uh, super respect Scooter Braun and what he's doing. I love the fact that he was able to buy um, Big Machine. Like I love stuff like that because these are independent music businesses 
that are able to kind of maneuver like a major record label. And I think that's where we're going right now. So for me, I'm trying, I feel like I kind of have a head start just because of my relationships in the sync world and the stuff I've done in dance music and stuff like that. So it's about really strategizing and executing everything I've been talking about and just really going for it. Nice. Just like taking your business outside of yourself and bringing it yeah. to, to more people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like now got me, um, you know, if I want to have a singer, you know, and I like the business model of like paying like a, you know, a singer that, you know, most like we know, like most people don't really make money in the music business, especially from independent. So I like that concept of maybe paying somebody on a work for hire basis and still, you know, have them do an album for the company or something like a sinking and stuff like that. Once I make my money back, we split 50%, you know, or just something like that. You know, like I'm still trying to figure the kinks out, but I would love to do some more stuff like that. Where it's just like, okay, I'll give you 5,000 or 10,000 to do an album for, you know, music and robots. And once I make my money back, after I do syncs or we do a Spotify campaign or we do this and we do that, we, we, cause you know, we both own the master, we split 50%, 50%. And you know, I think that's good business. Yeah, you know, you know, instead of me just owning the master outright because I gave somebody ten thousand for, it, I think once you recoup your money, you can still make money off, you know, the master recording and all that stuff, and have a hundred percent of the say. So, like, if you want to get it in a show or whatever, but you also benefit too because you're getting fifty percent as well. So, I really just want to build that piece. Um, I'm I'm trying to build like a uh, a composer aspect of. Um, you know, the business where they're doing like stuff for trailers too, because there's a lot of money in movie trailers. Um, so, I, you know, I bought like all the, uh, like the instruments and stuff. Like I forgot, it's like instrument programs and stuff that, you know, composers use, you know, give it to my producers and just see what they can do. So I really want to make this just like a huge music company. And I want to show people how it's ran, you know, maybe I'll document everything of how I'm doing everything and people could just follow suit. I mean, I think we could really make this music business a big thing. Because if you notice, everybody is investing in music right now. Mm-hmm. Everybody. everybody. Mm-hmm. Even royalty shades, you know what I'm saying? Like, you guys, like, I think you guys have the perfect business model. It's amazing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's just like everybody's really investing in music right now. And I think the way to take advantage of it um, is to set yourself up as a business you know, and just, like I said, just figure out how I can make money from here, make money from there, make money from here, make money from there. And you have a profitable startup, maybe try to go get an investor or maybe a record label would invest in you. Like what quality control is doing. Like I think they perfected the streaming model in my opinion. Yeah. I'm just an artist. Cause end of the day, you know, I am the one making the sales. So it's like, I'm clearly not just an artist and I'm coming to terms with that with myself. Cause sometimes people be like, Hey, could you manage me? Or want to be and it's like, I'm not a manager. Like I just happen to be an artist that had to figure the business out. Mm-hmm. I try to tell people if I didn't figure the business out, who's going to do it for me? Nobody. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like nobody. So you wouldn't be asking me to be a manager if I wasn't doing what I'm doing for myself. You know, it's like a catch 22. It's like, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing, Nobody would know about me or nobody would know anything. But because I'm doing what I'm doing, because I have to do what I'm doing, now it's like, hey, could you do that for me too? And, it, you know, it just gets tricky. So only thing I could, you know, make a compromise on is just like, okay, let me try to do co-pub deals or just something like that and just do what I'm already doing for myself. Like the, the amazing thing about having my own producers is I'm making them money when I make money. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's not me going outside of myself because I don't want to be in control of anybody else's career. Like I think, you know, because when it's good, they did it. When it's bad, you did it. So I, I know that already as an artist, and I don't want to go through that. It, it really takes off is when you can empower other people, and it's important that way, too. Exactly.
Thanks for joining us on this episode to hear about the man himself, Mr. Robotic, building a business around his music. Be sure to check out his socials in the show notes, and if you know anyone looking to get their music synced, share this episode with them so they can be inside line. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.